Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Blind Owl by Sadek Hedayat. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Um, I looked up pronunciations. There are like five different ones. I think it's tough because it's, I mean, it, he's- There are so many versions of Persian. Exactly. And he also lived in France and in India and um, like is a very famous worldwide author. So there are a lot of pronunciations of I Sadek. Mm. That seemed correct to me. Like the emphasis on the saw. Um, and then Hedayat is one that I heard. Hedayat. So like we're probably saying the English pronunciation Sadek Hedayat. Um so I just wanted to throw that out there for people who are curious or if anyone wants to correct us, that's totally fine. In our research, there were so many different pronunciations, which makes sense for a very like world traveling, like very widely distributed author. Um, there's just, yeah, I was like, oh, well, this pronunciation is Turkish and this pronunciation is Parsi. And this, so <laughs> there's a lot to to draw from. Well, I feel like that could be like a metaphor for reading this book because Mm -hmm. in the way that there are so many different versions of pronunciation for the author's name and it depends on the context and where you are and what your landscape is and what your lens is, that is how reading the novel feels. It feels like being a little bit or a lot of bit lost um, and making, you know, having to consider context and then navigating to the best of one's ability. Yes, we will do our best to navigate today, but I can't help but feel like so many of our listeners who read this book along with us are like, oh, finally the episode drops and I'm going to understand what what happened in this book. I'm sorry to disappoint you, (laughs) but um, we're probably just as lost as you are. We are going to offer some interpretation and um, some background and our readings and experiences with this, but this is the kind of book that you could read a hundred times and get something different every single time. And so many of the reviews said that. I think every review I read or like exploration of this book, the reviewer acknowledged like I tried to read it and stopped halfway through it that I picked it up again or like you know it meant this to me when I read it as a teenager and now I read it and I think this and so um yeah I, th- I and and I think that we've talked about defining classics and a book that is never done saying what it has to say is something we've talked about and that is certainly seems to be the case with Blind Owl. Sarah, I think we should give a little bit of summary for each part of this as much as we can. It's a really difficult novella to summarize. Um, I want to share just like a tiny little bit of historical context for the author and for Iranian literature at this time period. Um, Sadek Hidayat, Hidayat is known as like the father of 
modernist Iranian literature. But based on our definitions that we shared of modernism and postmodernism, I think that this text reads more postmodern style. Um, But here's where that sort of modernist label comes from. So Iranian fiction in general or literature is very much centered around poetry. Poetry is like a staple of the culture. And so most of the older classic texts from Iran prior to this time um, of the like early 1900s, 1920s, and 30s when um, Hidayat would have been writing, prior to that time, it was a lot of oral folklore and religious texts and poetry and ancient poetry and religious texts mixed all together. And so that's sort of like where the literature was. There's just this huge cultural appreciation and passion for poetry. I think you can like read some of the poetic language and description in this book. Um, in 1905 to 1907, there was a constitutional revolution of Iran and a parliament was created, which meant there were more publications that became available. So this was sort of fertile ground for developing a modern literary landscape in the country. Um, There was also at this time a huge inspiration and influence from Europe and the West. And so I think sometimes my inclination as someone whose experience is very centered on Western literature, um, sometimes I really want to make an effort to separate Eastern literature, not like separate in a bad way, but like make sure I express its passion and value as its own thing and not always compare it to Western literature. But here, like Hedayat is seeking those comparisons, is really influenced by Western literature. He was translating Kafka and Chekhov and um, was hugely influenced by European literature, lived in Paris for a time, and was seeking inspiration from those texts. And so that comparison, that like relationship is important when we're discussing this. Um, He studied at a French-speaking school in Iran and, like I said, translated Kafka and Chekhov in Persian. So those influences, I think, there's no understating them. Like, they're there. Um, And so whenever um, Hedayat is described as Kafka-esque, like, I think he would see that as a compliment. Um, And he came from a wealthy family but wrote a lot about, like, people on the outskirts and, like I said, is considered the great literary modernist of Iran. Although um, Iran has this major history of censorship, and so often Blind Owl was censored or um, not published or out of print and back and forth and back and forth. So there's an interesting relationship there as well. I I think that point is so interesting because I, I think – We've talked about, yes, on the the show before, um, that kind of thinking of craft and how we think of like of good literary craft that is constructed by our like Western experience with with literature. And so those comparisons can be really futile and just not appropriate. But here there's like 
there's definitely some blurring, some blending, some interesting things going on. And like you said, a seeking out um, of, of being part of that surrealist, in some ways, Western European literary tradition. I thought that the introduction, I think we both read the new Penguin classics. I thought the introduction was really helpful in finding my footing. And I don't know about you, but when I got to the part that was like, the next few pages contain spoilers and we recommend reading the book and then coming back, I was like, no way. Give me the spoilers. <laughs> Tell me what to expect. <laughs> me too. I I know I know so many readers who will appreciate the spoiler warning. And yes, I maybe that's something that Penguin is trying to do more often. And so I I know that a lot of our listeners will appreciate that. But yeah, for this one, I was like, no way. I know I'm going into this confused. I am definitely reading the summary. I think it totally helped. It, oh, it definitely helped. And I thought that there the summary left enough room. It didn't do too much interpretation. It did a little, of course, mm-hmm. enough to find my footing and, and all of that. But yeah, just knowing what to expect, even knowing that there were two parts that that the way the parts relate to each other is still up for interpretation, but offering some suggestions there was so, so useful. So I guess we're going to do a little bit of that here too. Um, and we we don't think that that this is spoiling the book. We both really appreciated knowing some of this going into our reading, but um, but I guess we'll give our own little proceed with caution spoiler warning here. So, oh, do you want to say anything else? Before well, I was just going to say in terms of proceeding with caution, like this is a very bloody, violent, kind of gory, fever dream. Mis- like there's a lot of misogyny in here. There's abuse and just a lot of disturbing content. So just a heads up that that, that is a, a part of this text. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well we'll get it we'll get it <laughs> of course. Um but yeah, a lot of a lot of uh content warnings here. So um in part 1 of the book, which is a little bit shorter than part 2. The whole book is only 80 pages total, but it's not fully balanced between part 1 and part 2, but we're introduced to our unnamed protagonist. He is an isolated, lonely painter and he paints pen cases. And he paints the same scene on the pen cases every time. And basically, we're introduced to these two figures that he paints. And they they both have these kind of light motifs, you know, recurring descriptions that follow them throughout. Um, So think about, like, to connect this to something that our readers might be really familiar with, like how Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby her voice is always mentioned like almost every time she kind of comes up. So we see kind of a similar thing happening here, only even more symbolic and pointed. So we have um, we have the the woman with the um, long dark hair and the the haunting eyes. I don't think haunting is the right word. There's a specific word he uses for it. Um, and we have the old man who's hunched and who laughs and who gives you a like a chill up your spine, (laughs) which is a great, great little signifier. 
Um, so he's always he's painting these these two figures, and then we get to this part basically where woman materializes, and he our unnamed narrator has a lot of feelings about that. A roller coaster of emotions, one could say. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then he realizes that she is dead. Um, he desires to still paint her, her eyes. She opens her eyes one more time, but then she really is dead. And then basically, I mean, not basically what he does is he cuts her body up, puts her in a suitcase and buries her. And this is like, he's, he's talking about this, um, in a way where, um, He's describing how he feels like haunted, like he has this shadow self, this experience in his life that he hasn't been able to come to grips with. And it's difficult, I found in part one, to, to understand if what he was describing is the thing that haunted him or if that is the way the haunting manifests, kind of in visions of what he's describing. So then we get a, an interlude, basically an, an opium interlude. We don't know when and where we've kind of moved in time. And then part two begins. And part two, importantly, is all a monologue. So while the first part is not like in quotations where we see just him speaking, the second part is. You did such a good job of summarizing that, Sarah. Did I? I was <laughs> yes. like, what am I, what am I missing? Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. I mean, it's impossible to include all of the detail. Yes. I think the uh, painting pen cases is really interesting. Okay. Yes. I wrote, what is, what do the pen cases mean? Well, there were some really interesting, uh, we're getting in the weeds here. We have to talk about part two, but there were some really interesting uh, paragraphs about writing and about storytelling. And I was like is the pen case and like this whole thing kind of about like writing out your demons. And I don't know, there was, there was some really interesting commentary on, I thought, storytelling and yes. being an author. Yes, I thought so too. And then I, I had to keep reminding myself that the, the protagonist is not a writer in the mm -hmm. story. He's a painter um, because there was so much in there about writing and the importance of storytelling. And about and art. Thought, yes, de definitely. Um, but it almost, he often, or not often, but there were at times like distinctions even between painting and art and writing. Um, and so I definitely also wondered what he was maybe saying about writing. Okay. So it feels as though this first part is the fever dream part. And then the second part is more grounded in reality. Although there's still a lot of like fever dreamy stuff going totally. on. Sarah, I think you should tell us about the second part because you just <laughs> okay. did such a good job. All right. Well, I'll try. Okay. So then in the second part, we we think we're with the same person probably before. Um, maybe he's like actually telling us about like what he did um, to lead to these fever dreams. And basically he starts telling us about his terrible marriage. Um, and there's really just no getting over the fact that he refers to his wife constantly as my slut wife or the slut over and over. Um, he was raised with his wife. They were not siblings, although they are related. 
but they had the same wet nurse and they grew up like like basically siblings. like siblings. Yes. Um it feels very incestuous. It feels very incestuous and it also there are so many doubles in this like his father has an identical brother and the phrase like two halves of the same apple is used over and over. So I I think there's definitely a reading available to us here where the wife is like not a character by any means, but another part of himself that he has to reckon with. Mm. I think that is my preferred way of reading this story, but we can, we can get into that. So the wet nurse lives with them and the wet nurse lives with them still. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so basically he talks about how his wife tricked him into marrying her and then proceeds to have all of these affairs. She will not sleep with him, but she has all these affairs with who he describes as the vulgars. And what I found really interesting was like this, this Freudian kind of like associative property thing happening where it seems like it's not even his wife having the affairs that upsets him. It's that my wife is sleeping with these people I despise and I'm married to her. Am I also despicable? Like, like if we are connected in this way, like what does that say about me? And that was really interesting. Yeah, um, and the vulgars, like the vulgar people, vulgarity, like that comes up again and again and again. And it's very like the narrator othering society as vulgar compared to him. Um, I thought that that repeated adjective or repeated phrase was super fascinating and just, yeah, I think there's, there's just so much to study with every single little bit and piece of this text. Yeah. He like, he becomes much more and more, he like associates with the, the the butcher and the, the peddler and, um, and, Finally, like he ends up, he he contemplates suicide throughout the entire book, but ultimately ends up killing his wife. Um, and I, I mean, and, and should we talk about the blind owl? The blind owl appears in this, and um, he kind of has this hazy, dreamlike conversation with. Um, with the shadow of an owl. I found it fascinating that the introduction tells us that um, the owl in Iranian tradition is seen as an inauspicious bird, an omen of bad fortune that is associated with ruin and decay. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And it's the blind owl is the narrator's shadow. Mm-hmm. And he talks so much about shadows. Okay, mm-hmm. I guess, are there any other plot points in part two that we want to touch on before we just get into analysis? Because there, there is a lot. There's like There's a lot with much. Like his you know, wife and her, her little brother and yeah. his father or maybe his uncle. There's, there's just a lot that I feel like we're really not going to have time to analyze. So yeah. We might as well stick with kind of the, the bones, so to speak. Yeah. No, I think that sounds good. I think- that's enough summary to like kind of get the idea to get the gist. Um, okay. 
Where should we start, Sarah? Because <laughs> there's just so much. Do you want to talk about shadows? You just said shadows are brought up all the time. And it's like on the second page where he starts talking about his shadow self. Yes. I um, I guess I want to say that I did not particularly enjoy reading this book. However, I'm really glad that I read it. And this is an example of how I really sometimes like reading books that I don't particularly enjoy. There's so many other reasons to read a book than just loving it. And even now spending 15 minutes talking about it, I'm already like appreciating it more. So when we say that this is like a complicated book, it's not the writing. The writing is so good. That's what I was going to say next. It's very easy to understand. It's very, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) With what you were going to say. Well, the first sentence, I was just like, this is going to be so interesting. So the first sentence is, in life, there are wounds that like termites slowly bore into and eat away at the isolated soul. And you just see how like, and a lot of the reviews kind of talked about this, like a certain type of reader would just pick this up and regardless of what the plot is, regardless of what they feel about the characters, would just find these incredibly intense sentences and be like, this speaks to something that I have felt and not been able to articulate or see in other places. And this book is full of those. They're dark. They're not like lovely sentiments about life, but they're really – they're just really viscerally painted. So then even in that first paragraph, he says, one day will someone be able to discover the secret to these supernatural events when the shadow of the soul languishes in the purgatory between sleep and wakefulness. I don't know what that means, but I marked shadow (laughs) of the soul because I knew already going in that the shadow of the narrator and the owl was going to be important. So I was marking shadows all the way through. And I think that this is really, like we've talked about in our class on modernism and postmodernism, these movements were really heavily influenced by Freud and psychoanalysis and the idea that there might be a self or motivations or things hidden beneath the surface that you don't have access to in your consciousness. And that is immediately being explored in the first paragraph. Yeah. And then on page two, the narrator says, I only write for my own shadow who sits on the wall against the light. I have to introduce myself to him. Mm -hmm. I have to explain everything to my shadow on the wall. So creepy. It's really creepy, but also like I was very intrigued, very hooked. Initially within the first couple of pages, I couldn't help but think of The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which we Mm -hmm. also um, discussed on the podcast. We'll make sure we include a link to that episode. This whole text kind of felt like an excellent pairing, even though it's so different coming from a totally different part of the world, totally different experience, different perspective. Like It just felt very um, tied in some way to The Yellow Wallpaper and I thought it was fascinating. I kept thinking about it throughout the throughout the book. Yeah, that's a great comparison. I also like 
thought it was really interesting to read after Rebecca with just all of the hatefulness towards the wife. Yeah. Um, again, definitely doing something completely different, but but I just couldn't help but think about like the way Maxim spoke about Rebecca. Yeah. And the first um, person narration, the unnamed mm-hmm. narrator, like that we've, these are things that we have discussed and connected with. Um, okay. Let's just cause this is the note right away on page three that I have is the pen case covers in painting and writing and like art and writing. What do we think of the pen case covers? So it says, I spent my days painting pen case covers. I spent all my time only painting pen case covers and consuming wine and opium. I had chosen the pathetic occupation of painting pen case covers to distract myself to kill time. I like this feels like too significant of a detail, you know? (laughs) I know. I know. And and let's read because I, I, I think the descriptions are so important on the next page. So the odd thing is that I don't know why I always painted the exact same scene on the pen cases. They were exactly the same. I always drew a cypress tree with a hunched old man sitting underneath. He was wrapped in a cape like an Indian yogi and wore a turban on his head. He had the index finger of his left hand on his lips in a gesture of surprise. In front of him, a girl wearing a long black dress was bending down to offer him a water lily. Um, a gentle stream flowed between them. And then those two figures become more, not fleshed out, but like more details, descriptive details are added onto them as we go and we see them. Um, we see them both on the pen cases and outside. I, okay. I don't know what to make about the pen cases because I don't even really know what a pen case, what that means. (laughs) Like, like, yeah. like, Like, is it the pen? Right. Like the, the casing, casing that holds it. the pen or mm-hmm. a little box mm-hmm. for the pen. I don't know. And maybe it doesn't matter, but I really had a hard time. I had an easy time envisioning the scene, but a hard time envisioning this. I think that one of the things that might be significant is that whichever, the painting is clearly in miniature. Like this is like tiny art. So it's I think that might be important, like taking these like all-consuming feelings and image and imagery and reducing it to something like very small and precise and contained feels significant to me. I also just feel like the repetition of like it being exactly the same every time is very like probably in conversation with ideas about uh, recurring dreams and how it being something that you have to work through in your unconscious to then like dispel, keep it from coming up. So to me, these two figures represent some aspect of himself that are engaging with each other, but he's not able to engage with fully. I like that reading. I also, a line that really stood out to me is, the narrator says, what's even more strange is that there were always customers for my pen cases. So it's like- That is strange. <laughs> yeah. The artist is working out his own demons and his own recurring nightmares, but people are willing to pay for it and consume it, which is, to me, and just based on like some cursory research and reading on the author, this is a man who had a lot of demons. 
Yes. Um, seems very evident that he suffered from mental illness. And um, in the very first couple of sentences of the introduction, we learn that he was found and died by suicide in a Paris apartment at a pretty young age. And it's just, it seems like this sort of commentary on like, I'm an author and I can work out my demons through art and somehow it speaks to an audience. And and that has been true. Yeah. For his- For, for years his, I now. Mean, I, I, this was the, my first time hearing about this book. Um, but it's always, doesn't it just remind you sometimes of how, how much of, how much we can be siloed in our own traditions and canons when you discover, discover in major scare quotes, a new to you book. And then you start reading, you're like, millions of people are reading this book. Yeah. And I had no idea. Yeah. Even with the internet. (laughs) Yes, I know. So that, that was really interesting, but I, I love that connection to the, the character and his, his pen cases. Um, there's also a couple of mirror images. So, um, when the uncle shows up and he kind of resembles the man in the turban on the pen case, um, the narrator says we bore a distant laughable resemblance to each other as if my fevered image had, had been projected on a distorting mirror. One of the other things that I think of aside from Freud and that sort of modernist relationship with the shadow self and with the mirroring is through a post-colonial lens, the shadow self and the double identity is sort of this um, struggle to integrate multiple identities and cultures. Um, And so just kind of knowing that um, Hedayat was in a French school, was enamored with Western literature, moved to Paris, but also like grew up in Iran and was influenced by all of this, you know, presumably Eastern poetry and culture and just like knowing that he would have had those two selves um, through a post-colonial reading. I can't help but think of that with the shadow self as well. Mm-hmm. And that seems to very much influence our narrator's perspective and the way he interacts with the world and what he and interprets what he sees. This is jumping into part two, but I I think that's probably okay. (laughs) Yeah. So part one almost kind of feels like here are all of the images that I'm going to reference in part two. And so then part two, it's like putting the pieces together, being like, I kind of recognize that. That seems... repeating. Mm-hmm. But I just, I highlighted this paragraph that just felt so postmodern to me. It's on page 31 of the Penguin Classics. I have seen so many contradictory things, heard so many differing accounts. My outlook has been so graded by the facade of objects from behind this thin obstinate veil that conceals the soul. I don't believe anything. I doubt the weight and firmness of objects, the clear and evident truths of the present. And he is writing firmly in the like modern time period, but that 
this like disbelief of even the the objects in front of you felt so postmodern and so like yes that in between space that like if truth is different depending on where I am and who I am talking to what firm footing do I even have in terms of how I move through life mm, that's fascinating um I don't know where to go from there <laughs> well let's okay let's talk a little bit about like doubling and the uncanny because I feel like that is yeah in here and and you know, I think in some ways this book feels very gothic as well with all of the – I think we often think of gothic as like the big house, right? And that's kind yeah. of the tradition, the Western gothic tradition that we are used to. But gothic can mean so many other things. And this is gothic in a very Poe-like way with mm-hmm. the um, – with very like morbid details and a um, fascination with with – death and perceived death so someone real like what does it mean to be be dead if they look dead um and the uncanny and doppelgangers and doubling so i just i so i mean cuz even shadows are doubles there's just so many layers of doubles but i was really curious about because this book is so misogynistic and so hard hard to read, or at least the character is so misogynistic. I don't want to necessarily label the book that without further yeah. thinking that through. Because um, we don't, like, it's not uh, proposing the narrator as a good person. <laughs> exactly. 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 And that can be a very dangerous thing to do is to conflate the narrator or a character's views with the book's views or the author's views. But certainly this character expresses a lot of misogynistic feelings. And but I I had a hard time not reading them as very symbolic. Like every time he talked about his wife, I really thought he was talking about this part of himself that he could not come to grips hmm. with. But I couldn't quite untangle what that part of himself might be. Yeah. Do you think that's like uh, a gender thing, like a femininity? Because there was also that part about um, his wife's younger brother that got seemingly a little sexual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could It could be very much like a, a gender thing, like a a feminized part of himself that he is struggling to deal with. Maybe that even has something to do with like a post-colonial reading and what masculinity means in different contexts. Um, I I think I would probably have to go back and do like a really close reading of how the wife is described in every instance to start to think about, think more about what, um, what, she might represent, but just because, like, because of the detail that they were nursed by the same woman and raised side by side, it's hard to just think of her as an external figure. Yeah, I I agree with that. The wife is also sometimes conflated with the woman on the pen case. So, yes. like, they both chew the fingernail of their left hand or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, some of those images flash. And um, there's very, cause there's doubles on doubles on doubles in this yeah. book. So it's not like, it's not 
in isolation, like, you know, these two characters are a pair. It's like, right. Right. The narrator and the wife are a pair. And then the wife and the woman on the pen case are another pair. Um, I feel like even like the wife and the wet nurse are a pair. Um, but there is very much this like virgin whore binary happening where yeah. the woman on the pen case is and is angelic and too pure for this world. Um, and the wife is, I mean, vilified for both withholding her sex. Yeah. Yes. From the narrator and having it with everybody else in town. Mm-hmm. Which we don't know is that we don't know what's real or what is in the author's head because like throughout this second part, it's also evident that he is experiencing some kind of illness that has him like bedridden, fevered, delusional. Mm-hmm. And so we still don't know, even though I said like it, the first part seems more fever dreamish, the second part seems more rooted in reality. We don't, we that doesn't mean that it is. It's not. Right. We don't know what's real. Right. Oh, okay. Well, what else do we want to talk about with this? <laughs> well, so just back to the your point about sort of the misogyny and doubling of the author. Um, on page 57, it seemed like the wet nurse maybe sexually assaulted the narrator. Oh, yes. I, yeah, when he was like tiny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like it's really gross but it's also really seem like it just seems like that just feeds into the i don't know i don't want to say like well that's the root of the misogyny or like that's the root of the narrator's problems because that's not what the book is suggesting but it just contributes to this sense of like when the narrator is talking about his childhood a lot through mm-hmm. this second part, it just like contributes to this thread of trauma and um, just disturbing things happening in his life that are all c- now coming out in the dreams and um, emerging in some way from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and that part was so interesting because it was one of the moments where he really acknowledges that he doesn't remember things well, right? Like that whole passage is preceded by lots of, and who knows, maybe this, maybe this. And so it's hard as a reader to get your your footing on like, is he like, um, you know, reimagining all of these things? Of course, like I think now from our present lens, we can really understand like, well, if he experienced that trauma, it's likely to be repressed and misremembered. Um, But we don't know if that's what he was exploring with the the ideas here. Um, Well, there's a really interesting commentary on trauma. Um, On page 58, the narrator says, was I not the endpoint of a continuous chain from past generations? Did I not have inherited experiences inside me? Did I not carry the past within myself? <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's stuff that research has only just <laughs> come up Amazing. with. <laughs> and I feel like that is was one of my major thematic takeaways from this whole book was his paranoia and anxiety and fear over who, who am I? Can I even have an isolated identity? And 
so much of the novel wrestles with that question. So there's the like inherited trauma piece. There's the, am I the vulgars because they are associated with me in this way through my wife? And then when he thinks about death, he says, the only thing that frightened me was that the atoms in my body would mix with the atoms in the bodies of the vulgar. Like, like seems so, the fear is like, am I the other? Am I the yeah. other? Like, and I find that so fascinating. I don't really know what to do with it. But when I got to that line, it, I felt like so much else filled in for me with what was mm. happening in this book with the paranoia, with the fear, with the shadow. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it really like, it really reminded me a lot of, of a lot of like Freudian case studies. Oh yeah. I've read. Um, and yeah, I don't think, I don't know if I have any more to say about it, but that line kind of was the thematic like thesis of the novel for me reading it this time, which from reading yeah. reviews, I know if I approach this Maybe again, we'll it's read it be again. something totally yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's one more passage that I want to bring up. Um, let's see. This was on page 44. Um, apparently the wishes and habits of the ancients had been transferred to subsequent generations through these fables and had become the necessities of life. Is life not a ridiculous story, an unbelievable fable from end to end? Am I not writing my own story, my own fairy tale? Stories are only a way of escaping unrequited desires, unattainable wishes, wishes that any fable writer has imagined according to his own narrow, inherited nature. I think that connects with what you were saying, where the narrator is talking about like the wishes, like the desires of my ancient people have come down to me? Do I have any unique desires to be fulfilled or am I um, required to want the same things, the same desires? Obviously, like he has this really torrential relationship with sex and he's kind of like examining, am I doomed to constantly want sexual release or am I doomed to constantly um, like desire this like uh am I doomed to have this fixation on my childhood forever because this is what people have done for centuries and centuries and centuries and there's just yeah there's something interesting there's just this lingering commentary on storytelling that I can't fully grasp but I don't know that we're meant to and I think I think we are not meant to and I think this is where we can circle back close the loop to what you said as we started with it, which was his influence, his influences with Kafka and um, and Gogol and Sartre and all of these um, kind of surrealist modernist thinkers, where I I think the um, the point is not perfect understanding. It's somewhat impressionistic, even though that's another uh, artistic movement that is totally different than surrealist. But, um, but yeah, I think that is the the intention, and that is certainly what I took away. Um, 
And I think, I do think unpacking it with you helped me get a lot more out of it, but also more questions than answers, which I think is another part of the point. Yep. Makes me excited for book club. Me too. All right, Chelsea, this was a reading experience unlike many others that I have had. So did you find it difficult to come up with pairings? What was your approach? It was a little tricky. Um, I was kind of intentional, but also it feels like this just kind of happened about looking for books in translation. Uh, And yeah, this is like really different from my typical reading style. Like I like a weird book. Um, That's like a funny little crossover between our reading tastes, (laughs) but I don't usually like something quite so dark and gory and violent. And so it was a little tricky for me to find, but I think, I think I got it. Like I was a little worried there for a minute, like usual. And then, then I, I got it. I, what about you? Cause I was like, well, surely Sarah's got like a good list of surrealist books to pair here. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I really like weird books. I really like surrealist, but I, I, I don't know. I still struggled with this one, maybe because of the darkness, maybe because of thinking about the cultural context. Um, I think a lot of the surrealist books that I enjoy have a fair amount of humor to them. And that's not something we, we touched on, but I, I did not pick up on humor here. Oh gosh, no. And so tonally, it just felt challenging to come up with some some pairings. So I, I went in different directions for each of mine. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear about yours. And then I would really love to hear from our listeners, like if there's anything that you've read that really reminded you of this book or... Um, just other directions to go. Because one thing in reading this was I realized how little Iranian literature I have read. And so um, that is of interest to me as well. Definitely. Okay, Sarah, uh, what is your first official pairing? Okay. (laughs) Official. (laughs) Um, Okay. So my first official pairing, I'm calling this my like palate cleansing pairing because it's totally different. Um, but it is Girl Serpent Thorn by Melissa Basher Deust. I think you've read this too. Have you? I haven't, but it's been on my list for a while. I've read um some of one or two of her other books. Okay. I I don't know her background, to be honest, but I know that this book is based on a Persian fairy tale. And because of the misogyny and the, like, the attitudes around sex in the blind owl, um, in the the protagonist, right, we've made that clear, like, we don't want to conflate the two. But I just, like, this is, like, a such a feminist <laughs> reimagining of Persian folklore that still has some of the same themes, I think, as Blind Owl. So Blind Owl felt folklore adjacent. It to really me. did. It really did. And and the intro that we read said that he was 
very influenced by Persian folklore, but it didn't really spell out where we saw that in this book. And so I wasn't sure if that meant in this book or some of his other writings, but I agree. It felt very folklore-esque, not in the Taylor Swift sense, but in the the literary genre sense. Um, Girl Serpent Thorn kind of feels Taylor Swift folklore-esque too. Anyways, (laughs) it is about a girl, a teenage girl named Soraya. And she has to stay kind of, she's a princess, but she has to stay like locked in this tower wearing full coverings and gloves at all time because um, she has a curse that anything she touches will die. And the book becomes like a very beautiful, epic story of self-discovery um, romance, queerness in many varieties. Um, it's really stunning. It's YA, but I, I, I don't read a lot of YA and I was so captivated by, by this. Um, there's a demon in the story who Soraya discovers might hold some knowledge about her curse and how to break it. And, its origins, which have kind of been hidden from her. Um, so the the reason this pairs well, so for in my mind, is both that kind of palate cleanser. Like if you want something that's steeped in the same sort of folklore that just feels like very empowering and um, romantic and easy to read, <laughs> this is a great book. But the idea of that type of curse that touching another person is like what will lead to your destruction feels so at the heart of thematically what I think was happening with Blind Owl, that question of like merger and intimacy and what it means to be known and know another person. Now, these themes are explored in drastically different ways in these two books, but they felt very in conversation. Um, there's twins in, uh, in this book, no incest, but the, or even incest adjacent things, but, but there is in Girl Serpent Thorn still that doubling that's happening in this kind of folklore way. So I really love this book. And I think, I think that a lot of our listeners would enjoy it. It, it feels, I mean, it would be great with like pairing with an Angela Carter or something like that, those sort of feminist fairy tales as well. So that's Girl, Serpent, Thorn by Melissa Basher-Deust. Well, my first pairing does have incest, so (laughs) perfect. (laughs) Um, Okay, my first pairing is Earthlings by Sayaka Murata, and this is a Japanese novel in translation. It is dark and disturbing and totally weird, on the fringes, I kept thinking of it when the narrator of Blind Owl was talking about like vulgar people and the desire for sex and also just trauma. So Earthlings opens as a coming of age story and it's about a 10, 11 year old young girl, Natsuki. And she has like this little stuffed animal hedgehog and she has a magic wand and she believes that she's from another planet and that this little hedgehog is like guiding her on her journey. 
Um, She spends her summers at her grandparents' house in the mountains, and she is always so excited to go and see her cousin, you, there. And um, there are both hints and overt explicit references to both verbal and sexual abuse that these kids suffer, and that kind of brings them together in an incestuous, weird way. Um, they're all of the content warnings for this book apply. It is absolutely shocking and just disturbing. Um, but in these early chapters, you get the perspective from Natsuki's 11-year-old self telling the story, and she doesn't fully understand what's happening. Her mother is really verbally abusive. Um, One of her elementary school teachers sexually abuses her, and her worldview is shaped by this um, and feeling like an outsider and feeling like society functions one way, and she doesn't know how to fit into that society and how it functions, which very much to me feels like the narrator of Blind Owl. Like society is functioning this way. My trauma is impacting me and I know it is, but I don't know what to do with this. So um, the book then flashes forward to her as a grown woman. She has found a husband and settled down, Um, but she and her husband have a really unconventional relationship by society's standards. And the book continues as she and her husband are like pushing society's standards and pushing the limits further and further and further. And um, it involves her having to like reckon with some of the trauma from her childhood. Again, dark, disturbing, really creepy book, really weird will make you super uncomfortable as you are reading. And also it's really fascinating. And if you read it through the lens of what is this author doing and what is this author trying to say, I think it can be a really interesting reading experience. But I think it's one, it's not like a book that I can recommend to people. It's like, oh my gosh, you have to read this. It's so good because it'd be like, "Mm, what is wrong with you? But like Blind Owl, it's more like you can really appreciate the reading experience. I don't know that it's a book that you would love, dear listeners, but a book that I think many people could appreciate. And it is a book in translation. I think there are some really interesting connections with Blind Owl here. So that is Earthlings by Sayaka Murata. I really liked Convenience Store Woman, but I haven't read Earthlings yet. But that kind of outsider narrative feels like it's feels like it's her thing definitely yes and she like speaks there are a couple articles I read after reading earthlings because I needed some context like I needed a little help (laughs) um with the book and um she's pretty clear about like this is what I'm trying to do with this story and I like when authors do that sometimes so that you can kind of take your reading experience and be like all right well did this was her goal? Did she do that effectively? All right. Sorry, I'm just I'm just on Otessa Moshfag's Wikipedia page. And yeah, <laughs> because I'm gonna talk about her next. <laughs> and I learned that she lived in New York City, but then she got cat scratch fever 
And that's when she decided to leave and start her MFA. And now I'm on the cat scratch fever Wikipedia page, which sounds bad. <laughs> and oh my goodness. This is caused by <laughs> cat scratches or bites. Anyways. Oh. Um, my next pairing is My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshbeg. Have you read this? No. I like the cover. I was like, going to say, I feel like the cover probably, the cover is so um, memorable. And yeah. it's it's like a Regency era woman, you know, sitting, but, but there's like hot pink details yeah. and she looks very bored. Um, yeah. Like it appeals to me, but I know readers who love, love, loved this book. And I also know readers who hated it. Yeah, this is a love it or hate it book, I think. Um, although I I think I loved it, but I I mostly the same as what you were talking about with Earthlings. I loved thinking about like what she might be doing with this story more than being in it. So the premise of this novel is we have an unnamed narrator. She is in her 20s. She her parents died. Um and left her like a large fortune. So she has this very kind of privileged life in New York City. She has a, an enviable and easy job. She has an apartment that she owns. And she decides that she wants to spend one year sleeping. And I mean that literally. This is surrealist, but it's also like you know, there's no magical realism in here, really. She's going to medicate herself into a year-long sleep because she just doesn't want to deal with the real world. And she feels like this might get her in touch with something that, some aspect of herself that has been ignored or is causing her dissatisfaction in her life. She has a best friend um, in the story, who's like basically the one of the only other characters. And the friendship does feel a little bit like foils or like a doppelganger or like, you know, the, the, the friend very much annoys her, but it feels like perhaps all of the things that bother her about herself um, are really coming out. And to the, the friend, Riva, I think is her name. And, um, and that kind of like hatred, but also like need for the other person really reminded me a lot of the narrator of Blind Owl and his wife, but just this like conceit of like, like drugging oneself into an understanding of something visceral and deeper is very much part of what's going on in Blind Owl. I am curious about this too. Mashveg's father is Iranian and I know she's very interested in surrealism. And so I would not be surprised if she was familiar with Blind Owl. I would be very curious about that. This doesn't feel at all like a retelling or like it, but it, but it feels like it could be kind of directly in conversation with, and just really makes me curious. Um, this is one of those books where the ending just totally, I was like, oh, that's where we're going here. I was 
so surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been. I won't say any more about that, but the ending astounded me and I still think about it. And yeah, this is a love it or hate it one. I would recommend if you are going to pick this one up and you're kind of on the fence about it, do it as a buddy read or with a book club because I think the fun of a book like this is um, being like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what's happening or what do you think about this? It it really begs to be discussed and I think get a lot more out of it by reading it with someone else. So that is My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshfeg. I think that's a fabulous pairing. I really enjoyed hearing you talk about that one. Thanks. All right. What's your next one? All right. This one. Oh, it's so good. Sarah, have you read Disoriental? No. Okay. I think you need to. It's Disoriental um, by Nagar Javadi, and it's an Iranian book in translation. It's so, oh my gosh. It's just really, really good. Have you talked about this on the podcast before? Maybe as like a recent read or no. Okay. I haven't. Um, It's it's just really, really good. Okay. (laughs) Um, So this one I can like wholeheartedly recommend. And if you didn't like Blind Owl, that doesn't mean that you won't like Disoriental. Like different vibes here. But Disoriental um, is about um, Kamiya, and she fled Iran when she was 10 years old with her mother and her sisters to join their father, the patriarch, in France. Um, She's 25 years old now, and she's sitting in a fertility clinic. And as she's sitting in this fertility clinic and, like, thinking about having a child and continuing the generations of her family, this flood of ancestral stories comes to her. And the way that this is told is just like weaves in and out of stories and her present experience in the clinic. And it's described in the blurb as kaleidoscopic, and that's a perfect description for this. So it's just story upon story upon story helping her make sense of her identity as an immigrant, um, talking about moments of Iranian history and politics, talking about stories from her family that have influenced and passed on traumas and hopes and dreams and curses and political opinions down the line. And it's just fantastically written, so inventive, a beautiful story. And yeah, I just I think that this connects well with Blind Owl in part because it's an Iranian story in translation, but just the um sort of cyclical, circular, winding, widespread nature of the storytelling. It's poetic yet conversational. It's um written, it's fiction, but it's written like a memoir. And it's just it's a stunning, stunning achievement. I listened to it on audio. I recommend it that way, but I think it would be beautiful on the page. So yeah, highly recommend this one, Disoriental by Nagar Javadi. Okay. Well, while you were talking, I just downloaded it from Scribd because it's available there. So perfect. Yep. 
Like I, this really will check a lot of boxes for you, Sarah. I think you're going to love this one. Sounds like it. Okay. I am going to, hmm, I'm going to choose for my final pairing, um, the Q by Basma Abdel Aziz. And this is, this is a book translated from the Arabic. And I want to make sure to preface that up front because I think rightfully people get upset because Persian stories and Arabic stories are conflated. And so I, w- I want to say up front, this, is an, this one is translated from the Arabic. Um, Basma Abdel Aziz is an Egyptian author. And she is, she's actually like a psychotherapist who works with people experiencing trauma. She really probably could have helped our blind owl narrator out a lot. Um, but this book, story-wise, tonally, I think it is drastically different from Blind Owl. It is about a um, unnamed country in the Middle East where a um, the government has been replaced by what is called the gate. And anything that you need done, you have to get permission from the gate. And so this queue, this line forms to request permission from, from the gate. Of course, like the, the line becomes sort of a society in and of itself. There are rules and norms about how it operates. And also, of course, the line never seems to really move or get anywhere. Um, this is sometimes described as dystopian. It, it, I, this was a Fiction Matters book club pick, and there was some disagreement over whether this was dystopian or actually a very real, if surreal, depiction of life under a totalitarian regime. Um, but, and, and, and it's much funnier than Blind Owl. But this book has also been banned and challenged in, and censored in, in Egypt and other Arab countries. And so I'm bringing this more as a continuation of what surrealist literature can continue to do in our present moment and how surrealist literature can be an opportunity for writers to say things that they might not be able to say in other ways. And I found this book to be like a very engaging and intriguing read, if not a perfect novel. I just, I thought it was really well done and very much in conversation with the classics. There is even a Russian classic called The Q that clearly Basma Abdelaziz is, is deriving a lot from, including her title. So yeah, I again, th- and this is another one, like if you did not enjoy The Blind Owl, if you did not enjoy Blind Owl, you might still really enjoy The Q. They're, they're very different, uh, but working within that surrealist tradition to seek change and and make commentary. All right. My final pairing here is inspired by a specific line in the introduction to Blind Owl that really jumped out at me. So uh, let me see. Got to find it. 
In the same year, in 1936, Hedayat moved to Bombay to live with the Parsi community and study Zoroastrianism and Pahlavi, which is Middle Persian. In the same year, he published Blind Owl as a handwritten volume with original illustrations. He made 50 mimeographed copies of his handwritten volume with original illustrations. I have not been able to find on the internet those illustrations. I know. Where do you think those 50 copies are? Like in a museum somewhere, I hope. some At least a couple. I don't know, but I did the translators of this in an article I read said that that's what he he used one of those original copies to translate, okay. even though there are like grammatical errors and misspellings and things in those. So they're there, or at least there is a copy somewhere or a copy of the copy. But I just haven't been able to find the illustrations online. Maybe I'm just not looking in the right places or looking hard enough. Anyway, I thought it was really fascinating that he had illustrations to go with this. I would love to see what those look like. But it made me think of Marjan Satrapi and her Persepolis memoir. Oh, I and that. Persepolis, this is a memoir in graphic uh, format. It's not surrealist by any means. Um, but Satrapi is an Iranian writer and artist. Persepolis, you can get it in a couple of forms. So if you look up the complete Persepolis, that is volumes one through four. If you would prefer to read it in short installments, you can get each volume separately or you can get one and two and three and four. So there are a couple of different ways to read this, but um, they're they're all pretty short. And um, the illustrations in here are black and white, very comic strip-like, very simple, very stunning and sharp. Um, And I have to imagine that um, the original illustrations for Blind Owl were similar like sketches or line drawings in black and white. Um, This is a personal story and also an exploration of politics and history in Iran. Um, Satrapi tells the story of her life in Tehran from ages six to 14. During that time, um, she experienced the Islamic revolution and effects of the Iran-Iraq war. And her parents were part of kind of like the intelligentsia. They were really outspoken Marxists. And her great-grandfather was one of Iran's last emperors. So there's just this really interesting family dynamic that she's got. And she's really intertwined with the history and the changes of the country. Um, So she talks about daily life in Iran. And then also, as the stories continue, she talks about her uh, emigration and her journeys in Europe and... Um, her more young adult to adult experiences. So if you look up any list of Iranian literature, Persepolis is going to be on it because it's really considered, even though it came out in 2003, it's really considered like a modern classic. Um, it's very frequently taught in schools. And um, yeah, I just think um, it's it's a fairly quick and easy read. I learned a lot reading it. It's just one person's perspective. It's important to keep that in mind. Um, But I couldn't stop thinking about it once I knew that Hedayat 
did his own illustrations and I really want to see those. Yeah, if anyone finds those somewhere online, send them to us. Or if we find them between now and and book club, we'll we'll share them in our Patreon or or on our, our Instagram if if we're allowed copyright wise. But um yeah, so that's so interesting. And I both do and don't want to see them. <laughs> yeah. Like I need someone else to see them first I and be need, like, okay, this one you can handle yes, and it won't scar your yes, brain. Forever. I need more information <laughs> before I make that decision. Yeah. All right. Well, that's just wild. It is. All right. Well, this was a great conversation and I am feeling like I'm looking forward to learning more from our literature scholars and what they thought of, of this this book. If you would like to join us, it's not too late. If you're listening to this episode on the day it releases, we'll be discussing it with our book club the following Wednesday. Um, if you want to join us to talk about it. If this one wasn't the book for you, but you want to join us for bonus episodes, classes, and more book clubs ongoing, you can head over to patreon.com slash novel pairings. There's a link to that in our show notes. We would love to have the opportunity to talk more books with you. And Patreon support is what keeps our show going. Thank you so much to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We will be back soon with a special short story club episode on A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. In the meantime, follow us on Substack, Novel Pairings, and follow us on Instagram, Novel Pairings Pod. And until we are in your earbuds next time, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.